welcome to Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to have definitively proven the existence of Bertrand Russell's teapot. <laughs> quite fitting, quite fitting that we would do so. <laughs> so, uh, what what we were going to do today was we were going to go over, you know, have a whole podcast on Scientology, but uh, one of my friends informed me that there is an actual Scientology, like a church of Scientology near Layton's house. Yes, and uh, due to this, I have contacted them and set up an appointment for Thursday to actually go in and take what's known as a personality test and see if I can actually become a member of Scientology. And, of course, there will be a recorder so all of our dear fans can join in on the hilarity. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say that they will find thetans in your personality profile that need to be audited out for a certain fee. <laughs> well, uh, that fee is going to be astronomical if they're trying to weed me out. All right, we are going to skip reviews today, but we are going to do our um, Mims Carter Skunk Dick of the Week, brought to you by the Bacon Gospels, available at lulu.com, out of which I will uh, read probably my favorite uh, scripture. It's uh, chapter 8 of the recipe according to Holy Bacon, John Bacon. Are you ready? I am ready. Bow our heads. Let me set this up for you. Uh, Ham is going to the mound of the pits, and uh, they go went to the butcher shop, and um, they had actually taken the. Uh, <laughs> they found a sow who was taken in zoophilia, okay. and uh, they, <laughs> they starting in verse eight four. They squeal unto him. Prize pig, this sow was taken in zoophilia in the very act. Now, old major in the health code commanded us that such should be mashed. <laughs> but what sayest thou? <laughs> this they squealed, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Ham stooped down with his hoof, rode upon the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and squealed unto them, He that was without cholesterol among you, let him first cast a potato at her. And that, you know, showed them. Yes. God, I love this this new... <laughs> I swear. You know, next time my family gets into a religious discussion with me and they want me to read their religious sources, I'm just going to hand them this and say, okay, once you've read this cover to cover, I'll read what you've got. I think you should send them an email, and every time you feel like quoting the Bible, you send them the Gospel According to the Bacon. That's actually a very good idea, because as it turns out, I'm the only one in those religious dis discussions who quotes religious yeah. email. Or yeah. yeah, wow, I just lost my train of thought. Anyway, continuing on. I wonder what they'd say if you just did that and didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'll just uh, quote Jesus from the Bacon Gospels and just send it to a mass email. All right, how about our skunk dick candidates? You remember. Uh, I think his name's Don McLeroy. He used to be the chairman of the Texas uh, Board of Education, I think. Yeah. Uh, but he lost that seat. Uh, the The Texas Senate, uh, I believe, kicked him out. But he's still on the council. And so they recently had a meeting, and this guy is at it again. He is all over the place. He's trying to force uh, the standards for Texas, which, of course, since it's the biggest market... Um, it basically sets the standards in all textbooks right. that go out to schools, yeah. So I think California is actually bigger, but its textbook um, requirements are so specific 
that uh, it won't work to be broad. But anyway, uh, McLeroy is in there trying to get all these conservative things stuck into social studies. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to this. I'm quoting all from right. the article. McLeroy moved that Margaret Sanger, the birth control pioneer, be included because she, quote, and her followers promoted eugenics, end quote and language be inserted about Ronald Reagan's leadership in restoring national confidence following Jimmy Carter's presidency, and <laughs> that students be instructed to, quote, describe the causes and key organizations and individuals of the conservative resurgence of the 1980s and 1990s, including Phyllis Schlafly, the Contract with America, the Heritage Foundation, the Moral Majority, and the National Rifle Association. What the fuck? Does the National Rifle Association have to do with the conservative resurgence of the 1980s, 1990s? Other than the fact that Texans love guns. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's great to me because this reminds me of those little cartoons that went on during World War II where you'd see, like, Mickey kicking the asses of the, <laughs> the yeah, Nazis. Right. I mean, Total that's propaganda. all this is. is just, this is just propaganda. This isn't history. History is unbiased. You tell everything. Uh, or if it's yeah. biased, at least you cite your sources, right? You're you're trying yeah. to make an argument for it. This guy's yeah. idea of history apparently extends uh, to the last 30 years. So apparently his entire social studies curriculum is going to be studying the conservative movement from the 1980s onward. Fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a skunk dick right there. He, right, said, well he said, uh, or the article says that, uh, the injection of partisan politics into education went so far that at one point another Republican board member burst out in seemingly embarrassed exasperation, guys, you're rewriting history now. <laughs> However, most of McLeroy's proposed amendments passed. Oh, you're shitting me. So you can add that to your list of reasons to be on an antidepressant medication. Oh my God, I'm going to take an entire bottle right now. Why, why would they <laughs> pass this? They're Texas. I don't care. No one's that stupid. They're Texas. I repeat, they are Texas. Okay, maybe they are that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Case closed. However, uh, nothing is as stupid than Senator Chris Butters in Utah. Now, uh, what this story is, is this was actually sent in, I'm going to butcher the name, just live with it, by Taiki. Uh, he, she sent it in on the uh, the website. <laughs> And uh, it's great because it's all about Chris Butters and how Utah is at a $700 million shortfall. And because of this, Butters has basically stated, well, you know, uh, high school students, seniors, they just kind of slack off in their senior year, so let's just take away senior year. Right, because Chris Butters had senior year of high school, and look how good he turned out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, after all... If if you cut out senior year, it's not as if they're getting any sort of education during that time. Let's put all of these 17-year-olds out on the streets and see what happens when they have nothing to do. Uh, look, I uh, actually was educated in Utah, in Park City. Uh, during my senior year, I took three AP classes, ended up with 36 hours of college credit. Um, the senior year is what you make of it. And yeah. my God, if anything is needed in Utah, it's more education and not less. Well, what pisses me off about this is I've actually been working with a company called Imagination Exchange in an attempt to get 3D modeling and animation courses 
in high schools, basically put in there for the senior year when they've got the extra time, they can actually take that, and these will move towards a degree in 3D modeling and animation. Because America is vastly behind some other countries, like Japan or even uh, Ireland over there. So if he does this, that completely shoots this entire project in the foot. I mean, see, I was raised in Utah, too. So I had the whole education thing. I skipped the ninth grade, went directly into 10th, 11th, 12th. So I graduated at 17. What other students, if they do that, they're going to be out on the streets at 16. Is this really smart? I think that if the kids complete high school by their junior year and want to go into college their senior year, that's probably okay. As long as the credits are repeated, I don't care how fast you do it. To say that uh, the senior year is worthless uh, and saying to all those teachers who teach senior classes, you guys aren't, uh, you guys are actually pointless. There's no point in paying you guys is a step in the wrong direction. We need more education. If the problem with the senior year is that it's worthless and nobody pays attention to it, then ratchet up the requirements for it. Ratchet yeah. up attendance requirements. Make it better. Uh, increase the education in the senior year. Make it more uh, valuable. Don't put uh, 3D animation stuff in there. That's totally worthless. I get Kiss rid of that completely. <laughs> I'm talking about philosophy. I'm talking about oh, mathematics. I'm talking about science. I'm yeah, not talking yeah. about worthless 3D animation to the you line Layton's pockets. I'm against that. I am now. all for lining my pockets, and as soon as we get this out into the schools more prevalently, then the training videos I'll be creating will make me more money, so kiss my <laughs> ass. <laughs> well, actually, they have an early graduation program already in place and uh this brenda hales the state associate superintendent says that 200 students a year take advantage of early graduation so i mean really if students wanted to get out of high school or could but i don't know the whole thing is retarded that's the way you do it you get the credits and you graduate early you work harder in those three years and you get out early um if that's the case and they pass the test or whatever's required to graduate then more power to them but blanket getting rid of the senior year, I think, is ridiculous. All right, moving on to the next one. Uh, there, there's this process called facilitated communication. Uh, we didn't go into. There's a big story uh, a while ago. I don't think we covered it. No, about, it was more just a discussion between ourselves. It's so stupid. Um, it's not worth even bringing on the podcast. Um, so, therefore, we'll talk about it now. Uh, there's a, a guy who was in a car accident you know, 20 years ago, uh, and he uh, was in diagnosed with a persistent vegetative state. the uh, The mother wouldn't agree that this is a that that you know he was gone, and I see this all the time. Um, yeah, know, what's parents, the inability to move on? And yeah. you can't you can't let go. Um, so uh, she brings in this facilitated communicator who, uh, you know, with kids who are non-communicative in autism or apparently with persistent vegetative states as well <laughs> they go in there and uh they move the guy's finger and uh, over a little keyboard and type out answers to questions now this has been tested and you know the, the test is very simple you uh take the facilitated communicator out of the room you show a bunch of stuff or talk to the kid and then you bring the facilitated communicator back to the room and ask questions about that and that does it well um they, this it was a big thing because this guy had been in a coma for 23 years, and suddenly with his facilitated communicator, he was able to speak, and he was uh, talking uh, uh, 
string of words about how, you know, horrible it was for these 23 years, and he's so glad he can communicate now. And Well, finally, they decided to do this simple test, and guess what happened? <laughs> hmm, the video I saw where the woman was uh, guiding his hand and typing out the answers, but only in Flemish? Let me think. Uh, she <laughs> didn't get the answers right. She did not get the answers right. And that video, maybe we'll throw up a link on the site, is really obvious about what's going on. That guy can't move any part of his body. Um, <laughs> I think maybe he works his mouth a little bit. Yeah, you um, see him kind of smile a little bit. His eyes kind of yeah. flail around a bit, but that's He's about it. clearly not there. She's moving him. He, the guy will ask a question, and she picks up the guy's arm and pokes on a keyboard and answers the question. It's absolutely ridiculous. They, you know, they put simple uh, pictures of simple objects, circles, triangles, squares, that sort of thing, and stars, and, and then they brought back in and, and they asked about the objects, and, and apparently this guy either has a really terrible memory or this facilitated communicator is a total fraud. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, he was claiming, or she was claiming, that he remembered everything that was going on around him. So you think he'd have a memory to remember, oh, a circle? <laughs> so those are the skunk dicks of the week. Uh, what's your vote? Uh, my vote, as uh, it should be, is Chris Butters. All right. My vote is the uh, facilitated communicator. Yeah, and what a surprise that you would go to medicine. Let's feed that into <laughs> our computer and get our answer. Stand by. Analysis verified. Oh my god, it's Glenn Beck. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we gotta get this computer checked. It just decides on its own which skunk pick it wants. <laughs> I think it just doesn't like Glenn Beck, which is entirely uh appropriate, I think. That that's pretty sad when even the electronics out in the world are beginning to dislike Glenn Beck. <laughs> that's one of the tests for sentience, I think, is, <laughs> is if you dislike Glenn Beck. <laughs> yes, I saw my soldering iron flaring up over the the mention of the names. <laughs> All right, so we were going to do this podcast on Scientology. Instead, we we're actually going to cover the uh, arguments for the existence of God. And how this came about is, uh, as, as I've been talking, I've been in arguments with my family over uh, religious beliefs for about three weeks. And one of the things that was brought up was the problem of evil and innocent suffering and, of course, the starvation in Africa. And uh, my brother threw out that, uh, oh God, he threw out just these retarded answers about how there's not really a population problem because if you took everybody in the world you'd be able to give them what was it three cubits of space here in america uh three cubits <laughs> i have no idea you were the one that brought it up i didn't even finish reading his email it was so boring a cubit is the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger well, that's good enough for me. You get three of them, you can live. <laughs> I think it was three hectares or something oh, like that. Hectare. I don't know. Oh, what the fuck. Anyway, so so he brought that up. Of course, uh, that doesn't make much sense. But then he also started throwing out that, uh, well, there's only maybe a billion people starving in the world and that uh, if rich people like Bill Gates was to throw their money out there that they would be able to help these uh, these weak and dying people and therefore the reason why God isn't stepping in 
is because uh, it's up to our agency. It is up to us to decide what goes on in this world. And if God was to step in and stop that small child with the distended belly from dying, then that would ruin agency and it would stop us from doing the right thing. I love that argument because uh, it's not God's fault that these children are starving, right? Because God has made enough food for them. Yeah. It's our fault because we're not moving the food to the people who need it. Yeah, yeah. It's not God's fault that in the Bible he was dropping manna from heaven to feed his chosen people, but all the people in Africa he's okay with watching starve and die. Definitely not God's fault. God's a racist. Well, that argument actually um, is, is uh, if you think about it, what's the difference between the world in which God sits on his ass like that and a world in which he doesn't exist. I mean, if we're the only agents of change in the world, why do we pray to this God? And why should we give him glory if we're the ones that have to do everything and why we just sit there, kneel down, and say, well, God, thank you for giving me the opportunity to stop that starvation. Yeah, um, what that has to do with arguments for the existence of God, I'm not sure, but I'm sure you'll tell me. Uh, that's because that's what got us talking about it. This was <laughs> this was my family's way of arguing for the existence of God. This is what got yeah. us into it, so kiss my ass. This is really interesting because we're going to cover first the philosophical arguments throughout the ages for the existence of God. But you won't run into those on a regular basis. You're going to run into stuff like Leighton's family gives, and we'll also mention one of those uh, that they give, you know, why they think God exists and why Leighton can't know God exists because it's a special sense. Yes. Um, but we'll go over first the philosophical arguments. Um, and let's cover the ontological argument first because that one I think is ridiculous. You don't even hear about it anymore. I think maybe in one uh, debate I heard it. Actually, uh, see, now I kind of guessed that Charlie would be covering why the arguments were wrong. So I went out there and I did research on uh, uh, people out there who believe that they have refuted these arguments and that these arguments are still viable. And so I have taken off of one particular website, which is uh, www.existenceofgod.com, where not only do they claim to know the answers to prove these arguments, but they also claim to know the answers to the problem of evil. Well, that'll be interesting to hear. Um, <laughs> do they actually support the ontological argument? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, okay. not only that, but... Uh, one of their titles is Atheists Are Therefore Confused. Gotcha. <laughs> well, let's set it up. Um, All right. The ontological argument most famously was reported by St. Anselm. 11th uh, century, yeah. And he, uh, when he came up with this, he quickly gave a prayer to God saying, Thank you, God, for giving me this because now no one will be an atheist anymore. They'll all believe in God. <laughs> so basically... It defines God as the greatest conceivable being, right? Yeah, perfection incarnate. The, yeah, a being than which nothing greater can be conceived, the greatest conceivable being. Now, we can understand God, right? We, can, we have this concept of God in our heads. So God exists kind of in thought. Um, but to exist in reality is better <laughs> or greater <laughs> than to exist in thought alone. Therefore, God exists in reality. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't be the greatest conceivable being. Yeah. Yeah, as they put it on the site, or 
If we think of God as being perfect, and perfection, remember, is part of the concept of God, then we must therefore think of God as being that cannot be imagined to be better than he is. Right. Yeah, pretty much. So what's the flaw with that argument, Leighton? Uh, well, the flaw, as they have brought up, is, uh, well, the the perfection in thought. Uh, the island, uh, the perfect island is always brought up against that, and uh, it's great their refutation of that. Yeah, the island was brought up by a contemporary of St. Anselm. Um, I think, you know, before Anselm died, I mean, within an, a single generation, some guy had already refuted it. He said that, uh, think of the greatest conceivable island, um, the, the perfect island, the island uh, than which no other island can be greater conceived of. <laughs> <laughs> and you can think of anything, the greatest conceivable zebra, the greatest conceivable... You know, um, and if if that you know if it exists in your thought, then of course it's better to exist in reality, right? Yep. So therefore, you'd have this perfect paradise island, um, and if that doesn't floating work, floating around well, somewhere, yeah, it's the same logic as the uh, ontological argument. It's kind All of right. a reduction uh, to absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these so guys believe they've that? refuted to it. All right. So this is. I'm just going to read the two paragraphs that they have about atheists being confused. And uh, I'm going to let you tear this apart. This is hilarious. If we were to think of God as not existing, though, then we would be able to imagine him being better than he is. We would be able to imagine him existing, and a God that exists is clearly better than a God that doesn't. To think of God as not existing, then, is to think of God as being imperfect, because a God that doesn't exist could be better than he is. The idea of an imperfect God, though, we have already said, is just as absurd as the idea of a four-sided triangle. Perfect is part of what God means, just as three-sided is part of what triangle means. As the idea that God doesn't exist implies his imperfection, therefore the idea that God doesn't exist is just as absurd, just as obviously false, and as, excuse me, just as obviously false as the idea that a four-sided triangle does. God's non-existence is therefore impossible. Really? The, their defense of the ontological argument is simply a restatement of the ontological argument? Pretty much. So this is their address... refutation. They didn't address the greatest conceivable island, why that uh, might not this, work. This is their addressing of it, is because God exists, they know it, therefore to imagine God is not existing would mean we could imagine imperfections in God, and therefore since we know God is perfect, there is no reason to imagine imperfection, so God is perfect, this, this logic works. Okay. Let's run through that logic in a different circumstance. All right. Um, because the the key on which this argument turns is that existence in reality is better than existence in the understanding alone, right? Yep, that's pretty much what it is. So is it better to have $100 in your hand than $100 in your thoughts? <laughs> is that true? Uh, in my thoughts. That's true. You, you have 100 bucks yeah. in your hand, right? It well, works for that... good things. But well, what about, is it better to have uh, malaria in your thoughts or in your body, really existing? <laughs> well, we both know I'm looking for sick leave, so... So you're getting, into, um, you're getting into a value judgment when you're talking about existence. I mean, it's ridiculous. Kant, um, if you want to go a little further into it, Kant said that existence is not 
um, a property of anything. <laughs> it's a category. Something either exists or it doesn't. It's not like you're looking in a box and, and listing, oh, it's got four sides, it's brown. Oh, by the way, it also exists. It exists because you're looking at it. Hume says there's no way to uh, demonstrate something existing beforehand, a priori. You can't do it. Um, I would argue with Hume in that uh, mathematically you may be able to, like the existence of black holes predicted, but you can't demonstrate it until you actually see it. Anyway, um, this this idea, Bertrand Russell referred to the ontological argument as a um, problem in grammar. (laughs) 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 Because the greater, that better, it's better to exist in reality than in understanding, that's the problem with the entire argument. Uh, yeah. It's a grammatical error. It's a category error. Existence is not a property, and it's not subject to being better or it's, well, and, uh, you, can't, you, you cannot categorize existence like that. Well, see, and it's just amazing to me that, that they would sit there and that they are so sure that God exists that they can't even see the other side of the argument. I mean, they are basically saying in their refutations of us as atheists, they are basically saying, hey, God exists just because you're imagining he doesn't exist, and you can imagine that he has these flaws. Uh, That doesn't prove that this argument is wrong. And I I love that they're calling us confused when we're the ones that can see both sides of the argument. The ontological argument is ridiculous. I've never, maybe once I've heard someone bring it up in debate. It's just, uh, it's an awful argument, and it's a confused argument, and their refutation of it is merely a restatement. That doesn't address the uh, problem with the argument in the first place. So, you want to move on to a different argument? Now, hold on. Before we get into the next argument, there's something that Charlie and I have been putting together. Now, most of you out there don't know that Charlie and I are also screenwriters, and we've actually written a, a screenplay for a new television series and we've taken our own money and put it down for a pilot episode and you here our fans are going to be able to enjoy the first ever episodes of Martyr Man Martyr Man I don't understand chief why would the terrorists put a bomb in this building it's already been condemned and scheduled for demolition not even vagrants will go in there Can anyone really understand the minds of religious zealots? If you think about it, the terrorists have saved us the money it would take to demolish the building ourselves. All we do now is wait for the bomb to detonate and head home to our... Oh, God damn it. When did Martyr Man get here? It's a miracle I arrived in time, Chief. Have no fear. In the name of our Father who art in heaven, I will foil this satanic or possibly Muslim terrorist plan. Listen, Martyr Man. Everything's taken care of. The building's been evacuated. No people are in danger. And we're just going to detonate the bomb. I see. I am going like as a lamb to the slaughter. Well, his will be done. No, 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 no. That's completely unnecessary, Martyr Man. There's absolutely no... God, he's going in. Oh, Lord, help me cut the right wire. Grant me Solomon's wisdom, Samson's strength, and Glenn Beck's ability to instantly recover from an unmanly fit of weeping. Oh, Jesus, 
If it be your will, stop this bomb from exploding. If instead you're feeling a bit dickish today, let my sacrifice be a sign of your wondrous power and slight dickishness. Lord, turn this totally pointless death into a powerful message that will spread thy gospel to wherever my internal organs land. Receive me into your loins, O Jesus, so that even though this body be blown limb from limb on earth, my eternal soul will land inside thy bosom in heaven. Well, I've cut every wire. Maybe Jesus actually heard me. Join us next time, where Martyr Man will face his direst challenge yet. High school football. All right, was that the end of Martyr Man? No, no, no. Didn't you hear the announcer? No. We have the next episode coming in where he faces the worst challenge yet, high school football. I wasn't really paying attention. How could you not pay attention to our screenplay? Moving along. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to the cosmological argument. Um, do you yeah. want to go ahead and state that for us? Well, basically, the, the cosmological argument is that nothing can come into existence unless there is a creator and uh, unless there's something to bring it into existence because nothing comes from nothing. It's the same exact stupid argument you get from people who say, well, there's obviously a spirit because when you die, energy doesn't disappear. It just gets transferred and moves. Well, they'd have to... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. They'd have to prove that that energy exists in the first place um, instead of just is in the form of chemical processes, which, of course, just stop processing. Stop processing and stop getting energy when you stop eating and breathing? Hmm. <laughs> right. I mean, you, you eventually run out of oxygen. You stop the oxidative phosphorylation where you move the electrons down and gain energy. You cease the production of <laughs> ATP, and uh, the cells die, and that's it. You almost sounded surprised when I brought that up. Have you never had anybody try to bring that argument for the soul to you? Uh, no, I, I've heard it in the form of, uh, you know, there was an experiment done where the, they weighed a person when he died and he lost 21 grams oh, or something God, like that. Oh, God, I've heard that too. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the cosmological argument, uh, I think most famously brought forth by Aristotle, says that um, everything has a cause. Um, nothing can cause itself, and uh, you can't have an... In you're trying to avoid an infinite regress with this cosmological argument. In other words, uh, there can't be an infinite chain of causes uh, from an effect today uh, stretching out into the past into infinity. You can't have an infinite chain of causes. Otherwise, if you reverse that, and move forward in time to today. We've already reached today. So that means if you look in the past and it's an inf infinite past, we have completed an infinite set, which is mathematically impossible. You can't do it. So you're trying to avoid that infinite regress by saying way in the past, uh, a finite time in the past, there was an uncaused cause. And whatever you want to call this uncaused cause, um, you, you uh, assume it's God. Right. You call, oh, that's, you can that's call the it. huge argument because they even state on this website that's uh, arguing for faith 
they state that the atheist or those fighting theism, their biggest question is, well, following this argument, who created God? No one created God, because they can say this without fear of compromising the first cause argument. The theist position is that everything that begins to exist has a cause of its existence. If something comes into existence, then there must be something else able to bring it into existence. God, though, unlike the universe, did not begin to exist. God is eternal. He exists outside of time and has neither beginning nor end. The theist can therefore admit that uncaused existence is possible in the case of God without being forced to admit that uncaused existence is possible in the case of the universe. God and the universe are two entirely different things. What do you have to say to that? Uh, you know, it's nice to think up this stuff to say that God exists outside of time and space, but if you posit that, then you have to explain how. How? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't. God is God. Yeah. Now, look, um, the difference between that form of the argument, which is the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, which basically is whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause, and that cause, therefore, of course, is God, right? Who, yeah. who, who never began to exist, therefore he doesn't need a cause. He was always around. Yeah, the well, only difference between that formulation, the Kalam cosmological argument, and the regular cosmological argument is that instead of saying everything that exists um, has a cause, or everything has a cause, uh, except for God, basically, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Um, what that does, they think that it solves the problem, right? Because it, it states in the premise, whatever begins to exist, God doesn't. So you don't contradict yourself in the premises. What it actually does, though, is it makes the case of special pleading more explicit. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing... All right, let's, let's back up and, and explain what special pleading is. Okay. Special pleading is you have a, a set of things, right? And typically with those things, there are a set of circumstances that are associated with those things. For example, uh, when it's snowing, it's cold, right? Yeah. Um, special pleading would be saying that, well, in this case, even though it's really hot, it could still snow, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like it, when hell freezes over. <laughs> <laughs> um, or the classic example is a, a defense attorney saying, look, I know you have this mountain of evidence against my, uh, my client. client. Um, you've got blood evidence. You've got DNA evidence. You've got his footprints at the scene. You've got a glove. <laughs> you have a mountain of evidence. But, and so in every other case, I understand you would find every other person's client guilty. In this case, I want you to find my client not guilty. And there's no reason given. <laughs> <laughs> and it worked, though. We the, saw yeah, it. It worked. The only person inside this special case is God. What else does not begin to exist? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because uh, when I became an atheist, uh, I was actually asked, where do I come from? And they weren't too happy with me when I responded, originally my father's penis. That's not correct. It's actually your father's testicles. Well, that's true. <laughs> it's much more fun to say penis to a religious person than balls. No wonder they weren't happy with you. you got to go one step <laughs> because further. Because I got it wrong? Back yeah, into yeah. the testicles. Um <laughs> But you know you can you can for sure set it down 
that it is a case of special pleading when there's only one exemption, right? Everything else you want, everything else in the entire universe you want applied, it begins to exist, right? It needs a cause, except for God. That's a case of... So the Kalam cosmological argument is basically a massive case of special pleading. Well, you know, it's actually quite fascinating because uh, in the very next paragraph, after basically pointing out that God has no beginning, no end, he's, uh, he's different from the universe, they actually have the paragraph titled, Not Everything Has a Cause. And they put, in fact, scientists have observed some events that have no apparent cause, that appear to be entirely random. Subatomic particles behave very strangely indeed. And uh, their response to this is just fascinating. Their response is, it is important to remember that much science is provisional. What may seem to be an uncaused event may be an event the cause of which is unobserved. We should therefore not be too hasty in agreeing that uncaused events are possible on the basis of observations of subatomic particles. Just as important, however, it is the fact that the apparent randomness of the behavior of subatomic particles is not also found in larger structures. Randomness, if randomness there be, is confined to the microscopic. The behavior of everything else can, at least in principle, be explained. I mean, talk about special pleading here. They, they are stating, hey, our God, he is an uncaused cause. He has no cause. He is just there. Oh, scientists think that, uh, oh, subatomic particles, eh, science is wrong. We, uh, we should look at larger beings. Look, first of all, they're, they're wrong. That's their biggest problem. Um, I can think of one case of a purely random uh, event at the um, above the microscopic level, above the subatomic level, and that's radioactive decay. It appears to be um, entirely random when that uh, particle is ejected. So they're absolutely wrong about that. Um, it is very true that things happen randomly or with a certain percentage that we can't pin down. Uh, at the subatomic level, but there are certain macroscopic uh, events, such as radioactive decay, that apparently have no cause. Now, the second problem with that argument is that they say it may have a cause. Well, guys, come on. Jesus Christ. We have to work on the evidence that we have right now in front of us, <laughs> right? Just because you think there may be some cause out there, that's not good enough. You need to pinpoint a cause. If you're going to posit that there is a cause, you have to pinpoint it. If you're making that claim, the burden of proof is on you. Show me where the cause is. If well, you can do that, the burden of proof is on science. Science is provisional. Ugh. If if you're make <laughs> if you're making the claim that there's a hidden cause that we can't see, then it's incumbent upon you to provi provide evidence for it. Well, now, see, and that's the big thing that they don't understand is they are making these claims and yet they are providing absolutely no evidence beyond, I have this feeling. You can see a tension here, this cognitive dissonance that they're suffering from because they want to actually, in order to avoid the charge of special pleading, they want to um, show that other things might be in that same category as God. So that way you, they, they can say, hey, it's not just God that's in this category. There's some other stuff that's in there, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. if anything else is uncaused, then uh, that shoots their, <laughs> that, <laughs> that shoots shoots their whole argument. The yeah, because, because then we could be uncaused. It depends on God being the only, yeah. Because if something else is uncaused, then, well, there might be a whole category of uncaused stuff, and that might include the universe. 
So you kind of go and you're stuck in this circle. Um, you, you want to get out of the special pleading, but the minute you get out of the special pleading, you shoot your entire argument in the foot. <laughs> now, above and beyond that kind of circular problem that they get into, there's an entirely different problem that they're committing here. Both the Kalam cosmological argument and the regular version of the cosmological argument are perfect examples of the compositional fallacy. The compositional fallacy uh, states that members within a set or uh, um, things that, that, that uh, compose something else, um, the definitions that apply to the members of the set do not necessarily apply to the whole. For example, all even numbers are divisible by two, correct? Yes. The set, the entire set of even numbers is divisible by two. Can you divide the entire set of uh, even numbers by two? No. Doesn't even make sense, <laughs> right? How can no, you divide not. the entire set by two? Um, also, probably a better example would be um, you make a brick wall, right? Yep. Each brick is measured, say, six inches by two inches by two inches. You put them all together into a wall. You cannot say, even though each component of the wall is six by two by two, that the entire brick wall itself is six inches by two inches by two inches. I, could, in make a, I could make a brick that big. Oh, my God. <laughs> the the entire set, the whole, is not bound by the definitions or properties within that set. With the single one. So, yeah. you cannot make a leap from just because everything inside the universe requires a cause. You cannot make that leap to the universe itself requiring a cause. By doing that leap, and that leap is uh, present in both versions of this cosmological argument, that leap from the components or stuff inside the universe to the universe itself is unjustified and it's a fallacy to make that leap. So the universe itself, even though all the members might, uh, everything that's contained within it may require a cause, the universe itself may not require a cause. And as a matter of fact, if you go back in time all the way to the Big Bang, physics breaks down, we don't know what's going on in there, plus time begins at the moment of the Big Bang. Before time, begins, how can there be a cause? You leave your science to you. I, I, I like God. <laughs> God began at the beginning of time along with the universe. He is the uncaused, and the uncaused caused the caused. Here's the difference between scientists and religious people. Religious people see something that they don't know, and they stick God in that plug, right? They yeah, plug God into that gap. We've all seen that. Scientists see something they don't know, and they try to figure it out. They admit... I don't know this. And then they jump in there and they try to figure it out. Uh, religious persons, um, theists, say, I don't know this, therefore God exists and explains it. That's no explanation. That is a non-explanation. It's an, well, a massive the, argument from ignorance. The biggest problem with this is how many times have they done that? How many times have they looked up at the sky and said, oh, look, lightning, it must be God. And then all of a sudden science explains it. And then, of course, they conveniently forget, oh, well, we thought God did that. And they move on to the next thing. Oh, well, we don't know why this. Science explains it. Yeah. You know, both the cosmological and the teleological argument, which we're going to get into next, are arguments from ignorance. You cannot take an unknown and replace it with a known. You can't say, I can't explain how the pyramids got there, therefore aliens did it. You can't. Yeah. All you can say is, I don't know how it got there, right? And my brother still believes that aliens built the pyramids despite my arguments otherwise. Yeah, well, we all know your brother's a dumbass. 
<laughs> yes, but uh, he has been moving towards his master's degree for 15 years, so he must be intelligent. <laughs> All right, um, let's move on to the teleological argument. Briefly, uh, this was also, um, I think, first put forth by Aristotle, but actually most famously uh, given by William Paley in The Watchmaker. You remember this one? Yeah, yeah, you walk along a beach, oh look, a watch. Well, obviously you know there's a creator. Right. You stub your toe on, on this watch, you pick it up, and you see the uh, intricate, interconnecting cogs and wheels, and you see that it was made for the express purpose of keeping track of time. Clearly it was designed, therefore the watch had a designer. Well, how much more intricately interconnected are we and uh, how much more complex is our eyeball, say, or our brain than a watch. So therefore, yep. we must have been designed as well. Of course, of course. And uh, this, of course, leads into attempts to refute Darwin and his theory of evolution. Darwin is probably the best counter-argument to the um, argument from design, the, the teleological argument. The teleological argument... Um, telos, I think, it just means end or purpose in Greek. Um, it's you know it, what it means is that this was done toward a certain end or toward a goal. It was designed. So the teleological argument, the argument for design, same thing. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, basically, uh, they are trying to refute the fact that the universe was not designed to fit life, but rather life evolved to fit the universe. That's the big deal here. Is they are trying to say with this argument that the universe was created specifically for us instead of Darwin's way of putting it saying hey we evolved to the climates and the universe and the world we're in right um i do think uh, natural selection darwin's great insight that you know when you have something that reproduces these organisms uh, reproduce these organisms reproduce with differential success some of them are better than others and the ones that survive to then reproduce spread on their genes more successfully uh, and more prevalently than the others. Um, and so sort of nature alone with selective processes uh, will will select out. So it's totally non-random. You hear all the time, how could we have just come about by random processes? Well, natural <laughs> selection is completely not random. It's a selection. It's well, in there I in the very name of it. And once again, it, it brings up the example of the Industrial Revolution over in England when all of a sudden all this soot started going up, it started blackening the trees, and all of a sudden there was a rise in population and the black moths and the white moths, who used to be able to hide against the white bark, began to be eaten more. I mean, this is evolution in process. We are able to see it here. The black moths, they were mostly eaten, they were very few, and then all of a sudden, black trees, more black moths. Yeah, but they're still moths, Leighton, so eat that. Uh, they're black moths. <laughs> Not to be confused <laughs> with white moths. With Kent Hovind. Like segregate those. Ken Ham, all the other guys, they want to see a moth turn into a cat overnight. <laughs> And that is just if, a fundamental misunderstanding of evolution. If you don't see that happen overnight, then evolution cannot be true. Now, look, I say that even though um, Darwin has the best response and counter-argument to the argument for design or the teleological argument, Hume, I think, destroyed it, um, uh, I think, like 50 years before Paley even stated it. Um, Hume says that this is 
at its base an analogy. It's not that we look at the watch and we say, oh my god, this was specifically designed for watchmaking, therefore it had to have a designer. What you say is, we know that the watch had a watchmaker because we're familiar with watchmakers. We, <laughs> we see people making watches. And that's how we know. That's how we know a painting has a painter because we watch people having painting. You know, they, they're painting and doing stuff. We see it on TV. We watch <laughs> architects. We can see people building buildings all the time. They slow yeah, us down. Yeah, we're familiar in with sites. Familiar. So um, the problem with the analogy is that arguments from analogy are very strong when the two things being compared, which by the way have to be different, if it's the same thing there's no analogy, so you have to have two different things to compare it, but the more similar those things are, the stronger the argument from analogy. The problem with this argument from analogy is there can actually literally be nothing more dissimilar than a human watchmaker who is finite, limited, mortal, partially good and partially evil uh, <laughs> than an infinite being who is omnipresent, omnibenevolent, omniscient, and omnipotent. Uh, you can't get any more far apart than finite and infinite. So the argument completely breaks down. Well, yeah, And, and that, it, was, at, that was Hume in the 1700s. Before got brought forward, yeah. And the great thing about that is you could always turn around on them and say, well, okay, let's take the watchmaker. What happens if you are walking along the beach, you stub your toe, and you pick up something that is so alien to you that you have no idea whether it had a creator, whether it had a designer, whether what it was specifically... Or what its purpose was, right? Yeah, what its purpose In other was. words, right, if we were to be dropped on an alien land and uh, they had devices, every, every alien's extinct, they had devices of an alien nature. Who knows whether we would be able to even recognize that as technology, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the scientific, the sci-fi trope is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So who's to know if we had absolutely no idea about um, aliens making these devices, that we'd even recognize it as technology, we'd even see a design in it? No idea. There's there's no way to possibly say that, and in this instance, the analogy falls flat on its face. Because how can you make such a claim if what you're claiming is something that you are readily familiar with? Right, right. It's It becomes not an argument from design, but an argument from experience with designers. Uh, and that's a much, much weaker argument. Um, <laughs> John, your soul has been stained by the blood of the innocent. Now, the the argument from the intelligent designers most typically is uh, fine-tuning ir irreducible complexity first. Oh, you're talking irreducible. All right. Irreducible complexity says that there are these interlocking parts and they could not have evolved all at once. That the chance of this happening is uh, absolutely infinitesimal. The problem with that is exaptation. Uh, certain things in evolution uh, they, they'll mutate you know typically what will happen most commonly it happens with a clotting cascade uh, it happens with all these really kind of complicated things um, such as the flagella for example <laughs> yeah the, which was there. actually thrown in my face by my father pointing out that there was no basis for this creature in existence right what will happen is that a gene will mutate and, and duplicate so you'll have two copies 
Well, the same function occurs, so one of those actually is free to mutate again. And so you'll get uh, that kind of twisted and, and taken to it a completely different function than what it was before. And the flagella is a perfect example of this because it's part of this pathway that used to be used as an injection needle, right? To inject yeah. uh, stuff into um, bacteria. By this bacteriophage, this virus would stick a needle in there. Yeah. Um, well, that mutated uh, to um, a spinning thing. And it's a very, I think Nick Matsky has done wonderful work on this. They've nearly uh, figured out each mutation, which is exactly what these intelligent designers now want, is a point-by-point -point account of mutations. And they've done this for one of the icons of the intelligent design movement, the flagella. Um, <laughs> well, the last see, name is M-A-T-Z-K-E, Nick Matsky. He's, he's fantastic. Look this up and read this article. It's great. Well, the funny thing is, is, uh, is when my father brought this up to me, I actually pointed him specifically to that article, and he just kind of went, oh, oh, ho-hum, ho-hum. And a year later, a year later, he brought up the flagellum to me again. Did not even pay attention to what I had shown him. It's as if you throw information at them and say, look, all you have to do is read this and you will understand. And they just shrug it off and somehow don't even remember you giving them the information. Well, A, they probably don't read it. And B, even if they do read it, they don't want to understand. Yeah. It causes them problem. It causes them cognitive dissonance, and that's an uncomfortable feeling. And so typically what happens is you'll tell them something, it'll bounce right off. Really? And uh, they won't even remember it a year from now that it had bounced off. <laughs> cognitive dissonance, things that they don't find comfortable. Perhaps that's the reason why my family gave up on this religious discussion with me only after three weeks. Perhaps they didn't like the idea and just decided, well, we can give up on our son after three weeks. <laughs> well, the, the farther you get away from the conversation, the easier it is to convince yourself that you won the argument. Yeah. <laughs> you just and rewrite history. And trust me, they need head. to get really far away from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go over fine-tuning, because uh, you right. brought that one up. Sounds good. This, I believe, is, is the next field of battle, um, because they're going to shift from biology to physics. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, now that biology is proving more and more against them, to fight them, I, they have to find a new ground to stand on. Yeah, I think they've lost that battle, and they're the, now they're going to try the physicists out. So what is the argument from fine-tuning? Well, the argument for fine-tuning is, is specifically simple. If, if the Earth was even, even a mile different from where it was, the, the climate would be drastically different. I mean, basically, this Earth is in the perfect position to allow life for it. If it was just margins, left, right, up, down, whatever things would be drastically different and therefore the possibility of life would would be nil there would be nothing and because of this because they state that the universe is so perfect that we have life in this world obviously there is god because he tweaked the little tuning forks right and left until he got the world perfect yeah there are a number of um counter arguments to this the one that immediately pops up is the anthropic principle, which is... Oh, I was hoping you'd go to this one. <laughs> which is, if the conditions weren't perfect for our existence, we wouldn't be existing to wonder about how perfect the conditions were. Yeah, how could we observe it if we didn't it's, exist at all? It's like a puddle looking around and saying, my God, this hole perfectly fits me. 
What are the chances of that happening? Uh, well, I usually talk to puddles. I don't know about anybody else. But... What are the chances that rain would fall in exactly this hole so that I would exist? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's so, ridiculous. So I think that that is damning enough that, that um, we, we wouldn't exist to even be asking this question if the conditions weren't perfect. There's this great comment, I can't remember who made it, but he said that I'd be a lot more impressed if conditions were horrible for our existence, and yet we still existed. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a miracle. If we were at the edge of black holes where everything was fighting (laughs) to kill us, and we were still surviving. (laughs) If if our cities were built uh, down there in the ocean vents, right, or in the middle of active volcanoes, my God, this is totally hostile to our survival, yet here we are. Then I might think that there was a God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, the great thing is, you want to know how they refute uh, the anthropic argument? Yeah, I'd love to They tell a story. (laughs) And here, I'm going to read this. This is just too beautiful. A story is told to illustrate the fallacy behind this objection to the argument from design. A man is taken blindfolded before a firing squad. A hundred trained marksmen aim their rifles at him, and, on the signal, they shoot. The man hears the shots, and for a moment is surprised. Bullets travel faster than the speed of sound, he reasons. With a hundred bullets flying towards his head, he should be killed before he hears anything. He can only have heard the shots because every marksman has missed. Then he sees things a little more clearly. Had the bullets been on target, he would not have heard a thing because he would have been killed instantly. The only observation that he could possibly make is of the marksman missing. There is therefore no mystery about the marksman missing. Nothing that needs to be explained. Of course, there is a mystery about the marksman missing. It is not surprising that... Given that the man observes something, what he observes is that the marksmen have missed. It is surprising, however, that he is still alive to observe anything at all. The same is true of the design of the universe. What? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I have read this story like four times, and it, 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 it makes absolutely no sense. It's asinine. So, uh, I think boiled down, I may be wrong because that was a weird story, I think boiled down, what they're trying to say is, uh, even given the perfect conditions for our existence, it is still a mystery as to why we exist. In other words, why is there something rather than nothing, right? Is that what they're saying? That's exactly what they're saying. I left out the last sentence, which basically states, It is not surprising that given that we observe the universe, we observe it to be fit for habitation. It is surprising, however, that we are here to observe anything at all. So basically, they are claiming that it's a miracle that we're even here to observe it, despite the fact that if we weren't here to observe it, we couldn't observe it. (laughs) Now, that gets to the bigger question, why is there something rather than nothing? And that is a, a huge philosophical question. Um, and I think the only reasonable answer is, I don't know. I don't know why there is something rather than nothing. Of course, um, you cannot plug in a god in there for your lack of knowledge. Again, that's an argument from ignorance. You don't know. You cannot say, I don't know, but now I do because God exists. Right? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You cannot plug God in for an unknown. Just like you can't say, well, you can't uh, explain 
that uh, light in the sky, therefore UFOs. <laughs> you can't do that. All you can say is, I don't know, right? And that yeah. is a deep philosophical question. But I think that is a little different. Now we're getting a little far afield from the argument from fine-tuning. We're now talking about why uh, or how or, or how probable it is that um, the universe is so fine-tuned. And there are, again, a couple counter-arguments to this. The weak anthropic principle is one of them. Another counter-argument is, if you look at the universe, it ain't fine-tuned <laughs> for our existence. <laughs> and we kind, of, we kind of hit upon that before by saying, you can't exist in the bottom of the ocean. You can't exist in the middle of an active volcano. There are even parts of the Earth that you can't exist. Go, go uh, try to ski out in the middle of the Arctic without any clothes on and see how long you, you exist. See how yeah. hospitable this world is. Right? This world is actively trying to kill us yes. at every turn. There, there are lots of places, even on this Earth, that is apparently so fine-tuned uh, to our existence, to human existence. I, you know, if it's fine-tuned for anything, it's probably fine-tuned for the formation of black holes because there's a massive amount of black holes in the universe, um, which, by the way, are <laughs> inhospitable to human life. Um, so I, I disagree that it's fine-tuned. But, but if you accept the premises, then uh, the entire argument of fine-tuning is a fallacy. It is the fallacy of anticipating the consequent. Um, what that, you know, there is a, a logical structure in philosophy uh, where it is if P, therefore Q, right? So you can plug yeah. in whatever you want. If it is raining, then or therefore the sidewalk will the be sidewalk wet. sidewalk is wet, yeah. And, and actually, if, if it's raining, then you know with certainty the sidewalk will be wet. So if mm -hmm. you fulfill the premise, you get 100% the conclusion. This is deductive reasoning. Um, you cannot go the opposite. You cannot say, given if P then Q, Q therefore P, right? So yep. you, can't, you can go if P then Q, you instantiate P, you get Q. But you can't go if P then Q, Q therefore P. In other words, if it is raining, the sidewalk is wet. The sidewalk is wet, therefore it is raining. Wrong. That's a fallacy. That's anticipating the consequent. If the um, sidewalk is wet, therefore it is raining. Not true. There are lots of other possibilities. One of them right. is that a guy's spitting on the sidewalk. <laughs> or me drawing my name in urine. You're, yeah, some guy's urinating. <laughs> some guy's watering his flowers and happens to get the sidewalk. Someone vomits on it. A dam breaks and the sidewalk's wet. There are tons of other possibilities. You cannot... Go. You cannot reverse that. You cannot anticipate the consequent. And this whole argument can be boiled down to, if the universe was designed, it would have the features of fine-tuning. The universe does appear to have the, the features of fine-tuning, therefore God exists, right? <laughs> yep, that's pretty much the thought process. <laughs> Right? If God exists, the universe would appear to be fine-tuned. The universe does indeed appear to be fine-tuned, therefore God exists. That is anticipating the consequent. You cannot do it. There could possibly be thousands of reasons why the universe appears to be fine-tuned, but it isn't. And don't this is be granting, surprised. This is granting the fine-tuning premise, right? Yeah. Granted, yeah. your premise, it doesn't necessarily lead to your conclusion. And once again, much like discussing with somebody how subjective color is or the taste of salt, 
you were going to get some blank stares by trying to explain this to somebody because right. you were going to have to take it back to step one to try and tell them exactly why their thinking is wrong. Right. You may just want to shoot for, wow, you just committed the fallacy of anticipating the consequent. And they go, what is that? Uh-huh, my point exactly. Yeah. I get the tell fuck them to look it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's fine-tuning. Now, we haven't really discussed complexity, which we probably ought to do this pretty quickly. Um, yeah, we've got very little time. We better hurry. Complexity does not imply design. Uh, complexity and, and ordered structures appear in nature uh, naturally. Snowflakes, for example, uh, patterns in the sand, uh, sand dunes, um, quartz crystals, diamond crystals. Uh, these are massively ordered and complicated structures, uh, but they appear, you know, supposedly every snowflake's unique. I don't, I doubt that. <laughs> I seriously doubt that. I'm sure you could find, yeah. But does that mean Jesus is over floating in the clouds and sculpting <laughs> every snowflake? I think Possibly. so. After all, <laughs> I bet. Jesus is there holding the <laughs> atoms together. I bet some fundamentalists would claim that that's true. Well, if he's infinitely powerful, I guess it's not much of a stretch. He could spend <laughs> a small percentage of his power sculpting snowflakes. Well, um, he does that on his free time. Yeah. Uh, but, but again, complexity does not uh, necessarily mean design. It can happen naturally. And again, uh, natural selection provides a completely natural way, given a reproducing organism of building complexity from nearly scratch. All you need is a reproducing organisms. And that's yeah. one of the big things Ray Comfort and Kirk Cameron don't understand with their stupid Coke can analogy. Coke cans oh. don't reproduce, right? I love their if... Coke can analogy. In fact, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we did a video on that. Yeah. You know, if if there's a painting, there's a painter, you know, without uh, without doubt there's a painter, you know. Given the complexity of the painting, I guess. Um, yeah. uh, no, no, paintings don't reproduce. <laughs> that you know, that's how we know there's a painter that the painting doesn't reproduce. So anyway, that uh, whether, I think that covers most of it. Did you want to well, say something? I did want to say one more thing, and I I, I don't know if this argument gets thrown against uh, uh, this premise that they're putting out, but this site actually had the mini-worlds hypothesis as one of the arguments against them. And basically, of course, the, the mini-worlds hypothesis holds that this universe is not unique, that there are many alternate universes that are inaccessible to us. And the reason why I want to read this is just the absurdity. It's just hilarious. It says, for the argument from design claims that it is unlikely that there exists a universe fit for habitation by chance. The more universes there are, the more likely it is that one of them will support life. Given an infinite number of universes, instantiating every possible state of affairs, it is certain that life will exist somewhere. And this, this is my favorite part right here. How plausible, though, is the many-worlds hypothesis? Is this too high a price to pay for unbelief? In my opinion, the claim that every possible state of affairs is realized in one of an infinite number of parallel universes is far less plausible than the claim that God exists. I can believe the latter, but I cannot believe the former. Shocking that he's a Christian and he can believe that God exists. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's an argument from personal incredulity. Um, yeah. If I personally don't, if I can't accept it, <laughs> if I'm incredulous at this, 
then uh, it can't be true. You know, um, yeah. um, you know that's a that's an argument only for his lack of imagination. Really, that's the only thing that argument proves. He has a lack of imagination. Now, I would turn that on on his head because you hear all the time, "Well, prove to me God doesn't exist." Um, you know, and I'd say, I don't have to, right? The, the burden, burden of proof, proof is, is on, on you. your shoulders. Um, I'm just waiting for evidence. So for this guy, prove to me that an infinite amount of universes don't exist, right? Yeah. You can't. He's already certain of God, therefore prove to me the universes. <laughs> you can't, right? <laughs> That's kind of a joke because it's subject to the same counter-argument. But who's to say there isn't a larger cosmos in which... Uh, uh, multiple universes are embedded. In other words, that that our universe is merely uh, it began with a quantum fluctuation uh, inside a larger cosmos, and that larger cosmos always existed. It's always been there, right? Just like God. Uh-huh. Uh, and there are lots of other universes, multiple universes, a myriad of universes embedded inside that larger structure. Uh, who's to say that's not possible or even plausible? Uh, you can't. So... If, if the best you can say, as we've been going back to again and again, is that you don't know. And if you don't know, you can't derive any conclusions from that, least of which an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, uh, omnibenevolent being. I think uh, the, uh, the being makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another, <laughs> that another, I can believe, but the la- the prior I cannot. We, we keep coming back to this massive argument from ignorance. I mean, that's pretty much all this stuff is. <laughs> um, well, I do, I do want to, I do want to go back just momentarily. The cosmological argument we didn't mention that the cosmological argument actually, even if you accept all of its premises and its conclusions, it's an argument for a, a deist god, a god that created the universe, a prime mover, as Aristotle put it. And then kind of left. <laughs> he set all the stuff in motion and then took off. He was tired. Yeah. And uh, and again, the argument, it doesn't get you, A, to a Christian deity, much much less a deity that kind of took the form of a bearded white dude in the middle of a bunch of Jews. Um, <laughs> got himself nailed to a cross by his own creations. <laughs> Says nothing. Should have stayed away longer. It says nothing about that. Um, so you got a long road to hoe from the cosmological argument to Christianity. But also, cosmological argument doesn't say anything about the Creator. It could just as well, and actually maybe even more plausible, that a bunch of creators did it. They got together in a committee, right, and designed yeah, the universe and uh, set everything else up, right? Um, isn't it much more plausible this was done by a, a band of deities <laughs> than one? <laughs> There's well, nothing know. in the argument that would sway you to one or the other. So it doesn't get you as far as it, as you think it does, even though you know it's got a ton of flaws. But these guys who think that it's the end-all and be-all, it doesn't get you farther than A, a, a deist god who set up the universe, wound it up, and then took off, or B, it doesn't get to a, a Christian god because it could have easily been uh, created by yeah. Quetzalcoatl, Zeus, and Jesus, <laughs> as well as Zoroaster's gods, and you know yeah, everyone, the original the, three amigos. Os, yeah, Osiris and a bunch of other ones. 
And once again, like we, what we keep circling is these people refuse to educate themselves on this stuff, they refuse to even consider the possibility that they are wrong, and because of this, they come out looking like ignorant retards. Right, and th this is the, the main thing, I think. When you are inside a theist mindset, it is limiting. You cannot see counter-arguments. It's nearly impossible for you to step outside of your own perspective and see the world uh, through anyone else's eyes. I can easily jump into a Christian's perspective and argue from their perspective and see the world from their eyes because I've been there. Yeah. I did it. Yeah, uh, both of us have. It is hard to emerge from that because it's got a stranglehold almost on you. Very few people emerge and become atheists. We're what, 15% of the population? That, that's yeah. one out of seven. Um, it's very hard to do. Uh, and, and certainly with this argument with your family, that became crystal clear. They are completely unable to step outside of their parochial, <laughs> narrow, Mormon mindset. I mean, this is a subset of Christianity they, they can't step outside yeah. of. They wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even click on the link I provided them yeah. showing exactly where their uh, high councilman or whoever he was was wrong. Yeah. They refused to click on a link. <laughs> yeah, um, you asked him three or four times. They said, I don't need to. So um, this it demonstrates how they're completely unable to kind of sit down, turn this stuff over in their head, and see why it may not be as strong as they think it is. Anyway, I think we probably beat that one. Yeah, yeah, we, we better stop beating that. So let's find us a Thai child and beat that instead. <laughs> Yeah, did you have any other ones? There's, there are a bunch, you know, the argument from beauty, the argument from transcendental um, logic those, and morals and that sort of thing. Those were the actual only ones that I ever ran across uh, in my search uh, to find proof for the arguments. Um, nobody ever really covered any of those. All right, well, let's try to one. We can cover those later because those are actually more common. But uh, one of the most common that, that I'll run into from regular people, not debaters or philosophers or theists or theologians, but regular people on the street is um, evidenced in this uh, article by one of our favorite apostles, Boyd K. Packer. Ah, yes. Uh, this man is, is genius. Uh, he's uh, Boyd K. Packer of the, the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect <laughs> and the little factories analogy. <laughs> yes, yes. My family hates it when I throw that mantle is far, far greater in their face, especially when they talk about searching for truth. <laughs> Let me set this one up for you. Boyd K. Packer's on a plane, and he's sitting next to an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually the argument that was brought against me by my, my parents, my father. And right. uh, this is one of the reasons why we're covering this. I hear this all the time. <clears throat> um, so this atheist, of course, um, you know, Boyd K. Packer being an asshole, bears his testimony to this random guy next to him. And the atheist says... You don't know. Nobody knows that. You can't know it. When I would not yield, the atheist who was an attorney asked perhaps the ultimate question on the subject of testimony. All right, he said in a sneering, condescending way. You say you know. Tell me how you know. This is, you know, atheists are always assholes, right? He's just yeah. innocently, innocently sneering, bearing his testimony yeah. like a total yeah. dick. 
and the atheist is sneering and condescending. Yeah, because all of us out there know that as soon as you tell somebody you're atheist, they, all religious people have it in them to nag at you. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> when I attempted to answer, even though I held advanced academic degrees, I was helpless to communicate. Yeah, that's because uh, your advanced academic degrees were probably got uh, at BYU, so it yeah, doesn't really help. Yeah. He said, uh, you know, when I used the word spirit and witness, the atheist responded, I don't know what you're talking about. The words prayer, discernment, and faith were e equally meaningless to him. <laughs> you see, he said, you don't really know. If you did, you would be able to tell me how you know. And he, now he's at a loss, but then came the Lord. Of course. <laughs> God stepped in and presented salt. Something came into my mind. <laughs> <laughs> he remembers the statement of the prophet Joseph Smith. A person may profit by noticing the first intimation of the spirit of revelation. For instance, when you feel pure intelligence flowing into you, it may give you sudden strokes of ideas. <laughs> I love yeah, it. I love it when he talks about stroking things. Such an idea came into my mind and I said to the atheist, let me ask if you know what salt tastes like. Of course I do, was his reply. When did you taste salt last? I just had dinner on the plane. You just think you know what salt tastes like, I said. He insisted. I know what salt tastes like as well as I know anything. This guy's too dumb to see the end of this line yeah, of reasoning. Yeah, he doesn't see where this is going. Yeah. <laughs> if I gave you a cup of salt and a cup of sugar, Jesus Christ, Boyd, and let you taste them both, could you tell the salt from the sugar? Oh, now you are getting juvenile, was his reply. Of course I could tell the difference. He's yeah, really as beating He it doesn't in here. see the trap that's coming. <laughs> yeah. I know what salt tastes like. It is an everyday experience. I know it as well as I know anything. Then I said, assuming that I have never tasted salt, explain to me just what it tastes like. After some thought, he ventured, uh, uh, it is not sweet and it is not sour. You've told me what it isn't, not what it is. After several attempts, of course, he could not do it. So there you go. He said, I know there is a God. You ridiculed that testimony and said that if I did know, I would be able to tell you exactly how I know. My friend, spiritually speaking, I have tasted salt. I am no more able to convey you in words how this knowledge has come uh, than you are to tell me what salt tastes like. But I say to you again, there is a God. He does live. And just because you don't know, don't try to tell me that I don't know. For I do. So there's there's his testimony. Um, and, you know, yeah. you hear this several times. How do you explain the color red to a blind man? You can't. Um, so, and I can't explain it to you. I have this spiritual sense that apparently you don't possess or you haven't exercised. That's the argument, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's basically it. It's because you cannot express it. So now, this reminds me of an argument I had with my... Uh, my mother, uh, because she hated philosophy, and she, she hated the fact that I went into college and <laughs> majored in philosophy, <laughs> because the, the, um, <laughs> the only philosophical chestnut she knew was, if a tree falls down in a forest, would it make a sound? And she, you know, she would say, of course it makes a sound, of course it makes a sound. Just because we're not there doesn't mean the universe stops, you know, doing things. It's not dependent on our observation. Uh, now, my counter-argument was, 
it doesn't make a sound, Mom, because sound doesn't exist in nature. The uh, expansion and contraction of air exists. The vibrations exist. But sound is made when those vibrations hit against your tympanic membrane, your eardrum. There's a setting of three bones that amplify that, and then it goes into your uh, cochlea, and you kind of um, process the frequency, and in your head, there uh, is made a sound. Yeah. Um, and this actually, interestingly enough, uh, one of Dawkins' book, I think it may have been uh, The Blind Watchmaker, he explains that we don't know how bats process sound, but whatever they do, it has to be different than what we do, because they can capture small insects. They make, they do this echolocation, and based upon the, the differing uh, sound waves that come back to them, they're able to adjust their flight to catch an insect in midair. He thinks that they're converting the frequencies of sound into what we perceive as frequencies of light. And only in that way would they be able to, so they would actually see sound. Hmm. Uh, now, I, I gave this argument to my mom, and she said that it doesn't make any sense. That sound exists out there in the real world. And no, the energy exists. Yeah, you got to separate the the contraction and expansion of air from what your brain does with it. Um, it's the same thing, you know, the frequency of light is the same, but there's no philosophical or scientific way I can tell that you process green in the same way that I do. As a matter of fact, I can almost guarantee you don't because I'm, t I'm the 10% that are... Uh, Red, green, colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Certain actually, shades of red and green, to me, appear indistinguishable. And me and Charlie, both of us, oddly enough, I'm slightly colorblind myself, and we will actually argue over colors like pink and red because I see them completely different than Charlie <laughs> sees them. <laughs> right. So clearly we experience light differently from each other and quite possibly from the rest of it. Uh, well, our family, we have to get your daughter in to tell us what the color is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our processing of light, you know, some people, there's a disease, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but if you press um, certain notes or they hear certain notes on a piano or in a song, like blue will flash, uh, and it gets kind of irritating because <laughs> you'll God, see blue. I would go to the orchestra more often. <laughs> that blue doesn't actually exist. It's just a matter of um, these neural pathways where the chemical signal is propagating. Some of it degrades off to the side and if your light uh, sensors, that um, optic nerve that kind of splits and goes back into the occipital lobe, if that's really close to uh, your sound processing, it'll shut off and fire certain uh, wavelengths that you will perceive as light. It's basically an electrical short in your brain. Right. Same thing happens to me when I walk out from a dark room into bright sunlight. I will sneeze nearly every time. And the only person I know who's allergic to light. <laughs> and that is because um, I believe the ciliary ganglion, that, that third cranial nerve, I think that's responsible for opening the pupil, um, probably runs right next to the sneeze center. And so when it fires, my pupil constricts, I'll sneeze. So anyway, getting back to the original argument of salt... That taste only occurs in our brain. There is no external reality to the taste of salt. So if Boyd K. Packer is giving the analogy of spiritual experiences 
to the taste of salt or the color of red, then he is, by analogy, saying that spiritual experiences only happen inside our head. Well, that's and that's exactly right. And also the which diversity. means God doesn't exist, yeah. <laughs> which is what God we're arguing. <laughs> and this is the great thing because just like Charlie and I, who are slightly colorblind, we see the colors differently, and we have to call in a third person just to find out what the color really is. It's it's just like with taste. What he's going on here is taste, the taste of salt. And I've been punched in the face so many times that I can't really smell anything, and I have to wonder if I'm tasting things differently. So to completely tear apart the argument is not only is it in your head, but how do you know that the taste that you're tasting is going to be the same of what somebody else is tasting? It's completely subjective. And you can't communicate because it is so inherently subjective. It's not a property of salt where you can break it down in the lab. Um, you say, well, this you know, is saltier than this salt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a taste that's completely subjective and within our own heads. So if you get that argument, try and march them through that thinking process and tell them why that analogy is actually arguing for the atheist position that it's completely subjective and the only place that that phenomenon takes place is with inside your own head. Finally, the, the one remaining counter-argument in, in this analogy may be that they'll, they'll point you to say, look, with color there is an objective uh, thing called light out there that produces a sensation of color. With sound there's an objective uh, you know, compression and, and expansion of air, you know, that sound wave, there's an objective, we can measure the amplitude and all that stuff. Um, with taste, th there's that salt crystal, right? Um, so yep. there's something with each of these senses that is attached. So maybe, by analogy, there could be something to this spiritual sense, right? Yeah, I wonder where we're getting this from. Oh, my parents and my family. <laughs> yeah. The problem with that is, in every other case, there is an objective uh, finding behind it. There's something that exists in nature. If that's the yeah. case, by this analogy, we should be able to find something underlying this uh, spiritual phenomenon, but we haven't. In the history of mankind, all of recorded history, we have not been able to find a single shred of evidence for the supernatural. <laughs> and yet... All the time, you have supernatural things being replaced by a scientific explanation. Right. You never see it going back the other way. Correct. Correct. Um, we replace supernatural experiences and explanations with natural ones. Always. That is a one-way street. We have never said, you know, as a matter of fact, that rainbow is not composed of tiny prisms of light. Uh, broken up by water droplets. It's Actually, because God promised not to flood the world. It is because God promised Noah he'd never <laughs> flood the world again. <laughs> I still can't believe my on, mother said that to me in this day and age. On second thought, it turns out it was God tying a bow in the heavens. <laughs> in the heavens. <laughs> that never happens. And there's also gold at the end of it, so let's yeah. all hunt rainbows. All right, uh, so... Uh, to, to wind up, um, that's kind of the the most common arguments you're going to meet. We haven't gone over a bunch of them, like the transcendental argument, the argument from beauty, the argument from personal revelation. There's a bunch of other common arguments that maybe we'll get to later. But before that, you know, we do want to hit Scientology. We probably want to hit Islam. I want to sh um, 
go over the plagiarism of the New Testament um, that that is stolen a bunch of things from the Old Testament plagiarized directly from it. Yeah, yeah, that one's actually going to be a good one, and we're getting to it, we're getting to it. I want to hit the early heresies and maybe how the uh, canon was formed, you know, they were arguing whether or not even at one point to put the Old Testament with the New Testament, um, but how the books were that were chosen um, for our canon, how that actually process Actually came happened. down to be chosen, yeah. Yeah, and all the heresies and the apocryphal literature, that sort of thing, so... Hopefully we'll get to all that stuff later on and maybe hit uh, the next chapter of Kent Hovind's doctoral thesis as well. Oh, God, are we going back to that? Yes. Hell yes! You son of a bitch. I'd rather read Twilight. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We will try to see you next week. Go Team Jacob. (laughs) Uh, But but again, uh, no promises. Um, We are the... um, Somewhat, Lackadaisical? Somewhat weekly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. We're being offered a beer every time we come out on time. Yeah, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, yeah. All right. we'll, we'll put one out on time. If no beers come, we'll, <laughs> we'll go back doing as we please. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys sometime in the near future. Bye-bye. <laughs>